What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, This is episode number, I don't know, 80, we're somewhere in the mid-80s. I can never remember the episode numbers, but uh, uh, point being, we're not a very new podcast anymore, but uh, for you first-time listeners out there, uh, basically uh, uh, what this podcast is about is uh, I invite uh, an author on uh, on here to discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, something uh, we think you guys would like to hear uh, a discussion about. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, uh, if you get your druthers about you, you go out and uh, purchase the book for yourself and give it a read. So, uh, yeah, so that's what we do here. And if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. Jed Pearl, and Jed Pearl teaches at the New School for Social Research, was the art critic at the New Republic for 20 years, and was a contributing editor at Vogue for a decade. Uh, He is a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books, and has also written for the New York Times Book Review, Harper's, The New Criterion, The Wall Street Journal, The Three Penny Review, The Yale Review, Literary Hub, and Salma Gundy, among many others. Uh, He is the recipient of awards from the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Academy in Rome, the Leon Levy Biography Center at the City University of New York, and the Ingram Merrill Foundation. He is the author of Paris Without End on French art since World War I, Eyewitness Reports from an Art World in Crisis, New Art City, Manhattan at Mid-Century, Magicians and Charlatans, Essays on Art and Culture, and a two-volume biography of the sculptor Alexander Calder, Calder, The Conquest of Time, and Calder, The Conquest of Space. And lastly, he is the author of Authority and Freedom, A Defense of the Arts, which was which was published back in January by Knopf, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Pearl, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and uh, discussing the book with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tim. Really glad to be here. Great. So, uh, first things first, before we get to the, you know, the, the meat of the book itself, what... Uh, uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of it? The genesis of this book is my life um, as an art critic, as somebody living in New York, loving not just the visual arts, but just really caring deeply about all the arts, um, movies, literature, theater, opera, dance. And I've really been troubled in the last years, I mean, it, uh, maybe even as far back as 20 years ago, I've really been troubled by a feeling that the arts have become a kind of political football. Um, and you have people on the left and people on the right who seem to want to talk about the arts always in political terms. The arts should do this. The arts should advocate for a certain position, a political position, a um, an idea about uh, you know how, how people uh, should live, um, how the world can be improved. Um, you get that from 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 all angles. And what I wanted to do was write a book uh, defending 
what I call the freestanding value of the arts. Because I think at the center of the arts, their central value is that they're not politics. They're not social commentary. They may have aspects of those things, but for me, before all else, the arts are a, a very special realm in our world um, where thing, where emotions, apprehensions, sensations can be expressed freely with great complexity without those kind of cut and dry uh, conclusions or um, uh, kind of um, plot lines that people uh, in the political world um, often demand. Yeah. Um, before we get to uh, that, um, the politicization of art we've seen recently, um, just sort of off with the uh, the uh, title of the book, Authority and Freedom. Um, uh, why are authority and freedom the lifeblood of the arts, and 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 what do you mean by authority and freedom in regards to the arts and the the uh, the struggle between the two uh, that you know that you note has uh, you know has taken place no matter the time and place on earth there's always been a struggle between authority and freedom in the arts well let, let me say a bit about how I got to um, to this idea about sure. uh, the arts and authority and freedom because I you know I spent years um, feeling that the arts are incredibly important we we react to them with with great um, intensity, um, even when we can't say exactly what it is they do for us, a, a beautiful melody, a, a love song, a, a poem about love, a, a beautiful painting of a landscape, we react to these things very, very deeply, very intensely. And I, I, I was asking someone, why is it? Why is that? And I, I came to feel that Every time we address a work of art, um, what we're actually seeing, what we're experiencing, although we may not be totally conscious that this is what we're experiencing, what we're actually experiencing is a very human struggle, a very human engagement with two of the sort of fundamental dimensions of human experience. Um, let me give an example. Um, you. Uh, you, you open a, a book of short stories and we all come to a short story with a st with certain assumptions. Um, it's going to have a beginning, something's going to happen, and it's going to have an ending. That, I would say, is the authority of the story, of storytelling. Okay, And we come to it with that assumption. And then what interests us, what engages us is how does the writer shape those factors, those elements, um, to make a powerful story, at a story that has a particular kind of quality? Like there are many stories um, that we read, and it's true. Like you go to the movies, and you know some 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 storytelling, whether it's in a a, a literary work or in a movie. You know, sometimes we. Um, we get very engaged by storytelling, and then the story will end in a kind of mysterious, anticlimactic way. The story doesn't really have an ending, you know what I mean? It just sort of, mm -hmm. 
the, the characters float away. Um, now that is a choice that the creator freely makes to play with the authority of storytelling. Rather than have a conclusive ending, you have a kind of open-ended ending. And I think part of what excites us, all of us, when we go to the arts, is how the individual creator, whether that's a novelist, a filmmaker, a choreographer, or a singer, or a, uh, an actor, how they freely engage with the medium in which they're involved. Um, and frankly, one of the things that's upset me a lot about what's been going on in the arts and in writing about the arts and reporting about the arts in recent years is, you know, you'll have a, uh, uh, you, you have a report where it starts by telling us like about the artists, um, ethnic background, maybe their sexual preferences, stuff like that mm -hmm. before we're told, um, is this person a wonderful storyteller? Um, what kind of a voice is it? What kind of right. painter is this person? What kind of colors do they use? What is their sensibility? So it's like, rather than starting with the work of art, we get we start in these other places. But yeah, I and that's like the, and all that stuff, I mean, it's sort of ancillary to everything. It's like the least important <laughs> information you need about like that piece of art is... Uh, you know, what color or sexual orientation or, uh, you know, uh, whether the, the artist is left-handed or right-handed, you know what I mean? Like none of that stuff really matters well, when it comes to the art. It gets, once you really get into the art, you want to know more about the person. You know right, what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes, um, those, those things, the, the sort of aspect of who the person is kind of flows, can flow naturally out of your initial engagement with the thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I think it's, again, this, our sense of this profoundly human, um, interaction between the great traditions of any art form, okay, um, and the individual creator, um, I think that's really what holds us, um, in, 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 in all the arts. And I, I'm talking here about the popular arts as well as the, uh, the high arts. Um, again, I think I, you know, in the book, I talk not only about Mozart and Michelangelo, I also talk about Aretha Franklin, mm -hmm. uh, who's for me, like just a transcendent artist. Yeah, I'm a um, big fan. Because <laughs> for her authority, she talked with us, was the gospel tradition, the tradition she grew up in, which was a religious church tradition. And she took that, she took, the dynamics of gospel, um, the the power of that that music, and she, through her own sense of freedom and imagination, um, used that to create extraordinary um, performances, often with songs she herself sometimes she herself composed, yeah. which um, which touch just all kinds of people um, in all kinds of ways. Yeah. I mean, that's not, uh, I mean, unique, something that's unique to Aretha Franklin either. Um, she might have been more involved uh, in the church uh, than uh, many of her contemporaries, but most, it seems like most of the black singers of that time period um, had some sort of formative training singing uh, in the church, you know, right. whether it's Sam Cooke or, or, you know, even James Brown or... Or I would have anything like that, uh, you know. Uh, uh, but um, 
but Aretha, uh, no, Aretha just has this voice that's, uh, um, I don't know how to describe it other than, uh, you know, sort of God gifted, you know, or just <laughs> touched by angels or something like that. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, uh, yeah, just, uh, sorry. I just wanted to add that in there as you point about the, the, uh, the church and the, the gospel. Anyway, um, so sort of on that, um, just again at the beginning of the book, uh, you, um, but you, you note that the, or maybe it was at the end of the book, I can't remember, uh, but you noted uh, that the, you know, the question of the intrinsic value of art, you know, or, uh, you know, the idea of art for art's sake, you know, Ars Grati Artis, <laughs> the old MGM uh, line, is something is, is something you never expected to need to address. Um, you know, for uh, for you, that idea is a given. For me as well, that idea is a, is a given. Uh, but you say you, you you took for granted that belief that the the arts have their own uh, independent significance, and uh, you know, for others, that idea is a questionable one. And uh, why do you believe this? Why do you believe this now? What made you change your mind? Change? Make me? Well, I mean, I was very lucky. I grew up in a family um, uh, where the arts were all around me. Um, my mom was a serious pianist. I mean, and, you know, my parents were big readers. So I, I never had to um, kind of question the importance of the art. It was like just there. It was, it was um, second nature. But... Um, uh, as, as time has gone on, I mean, I, uh, I think we've, we've got, we've gotten to a situation where, you know, in many social and political ways, we feel our world is in a time of crisis and it is in a time of crisis. Um, and I think a lot of people, um, uh, for, for understandable reasons, for honorable reasons, for good reasons, they, I think they want the arts to do something clear they want the arts to make a statement about climate change um or um on the right sometimes people are offended because they feel the um you know the art a work of artists will tell a story that's um uh doesn't uh, comport with their the values they've chosen to live with um it might you know a novel about adultery or i don't know you know mm -hmm. um and people might be upset about um uh uh that um, and I think a lot of th those feelings are understandable. They grow out of uh, a sense of living in a time of emergency. Um, and, and I think even sometimes people who love music, they love listening to Mozart, um, or let's say they love reading Jade Austen, and they're maybe a little embarrassed because they think, well, you know, in a time where, you know, uh, the war in Ukraine, um, you know, crises to the left and right, um, mass shootings. How can I be enjoying, uh, you know, 18th century, you know, Mozart's 18th century music or uh, Jane Austen's stories of, you know, the troubles of, of young women getting married or not getting married? And I think sometimes people feel an embarrassment. And what I wanted to argue in this book is, you know, you use the term art for art's sake. Um, art has its own logic and life, but it's it's a profoundly important one. 
because art is a place where the imagination um, is free, where um, you don't have to um, uh, have a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a politician or a judge, um, you have you may have various opinions, conflicting opinions, but you have to come down somewhere. One of the marvelous things about art is that artists don't have to do that. They have to make something that is compelling, but they don't have to give us that kind of cut and dry answer. You know, one thing that I, I occurred to me while I was in the process of writing this book, um, just going back from it to Mozart and yeah, Jane sure. these are two people who, about whom there have been arguments for uh, I, decades and decades, for a century or more, about is Jane Austen radical or conservative? Is Mozart, um, what is Mozart's politics? And books have been written about these things. But nobody ever comes to a conclusion. And I realized the reason nobody can come to a conclusion is the question is the wrong question. Because Mozart um, you know, even in uh, you know, in Don Giovanni, in the operas, he's not, um, uh, or the, imagine, he's not uh, trying to make a statement about um, the condition of a society. He's trying to compellingly show experiences and dynamics, and that's what art does um, through the way that the artists through the freedom to imagine create plays with the conventions for Mozart then it was the conventions of opera of, of how you do opera so and I, what, what I wanted to do with this book was give people a feeling that they could go to art and just kind of be there and feel um, the kind of dem- dimensions and dynamics that art has to offer without asking it or demanding for it to draw conclusions, mm-hmm. political conclusions or social conclusions. Yeah, and just to the broader uh, point of, uh, you know, <laughs> Mozart's politics or whatever, but it's it's also just like, well, honestly, who cares what his politics were? I mean, whether or not, I don't think it, it would affect my, uh, uh, you know, enjoyment of Linoza de Figaro or something like that if I knew that Mo- uh, Mozart was a... a a monarchist or, you know, a closet Republican or, uh, you know, or, uh, an, an Illuminati or, you know, or something like that. You know what I mean? I, um, or, um, it, but just the idea there's, um, this idea too now that like people are sort of getting, uh, maybe not cancels the word, but like pressure for their artists getting pressured for their, you know, political beliefs or whatever and i just find it like i just don't really care what anyone's uh you know beliefs are i you know um or you know like alec baldwin for example uh you know i probably share nothing in common politically with alec baldwin i love alec baldwin as an actor i think he's fantastic you know i am much more likely to watch a movie or a television show with alec baldwin in it uh, then I, you know what I mean? If I'm just scrolling through, I'm like, oh, Alec Baldwin's in this. I'll, you know, I'll give it a shot. Um, you know, I don't, irrespective of his politics, I just don't care. I don't know. Maybe that's something, um, 
maybe that's something as someone you know more on the right uh, that we just uh, <laughs> that we, you know you just sort of just take for granted that everyone in, in uh, for the most part in any sort of artistic endeavor is not going to share your politics. So it's just um, you know it doesn't really uh, come up in any sort of way. Or you know if if you were <laughs> I mean if you were someone on the right and you know uh, going to eliminate uh, from your life any uh, artist or piece of art. Uh, from somebody who, uh, you know, was someone more to the left side of the spectrum, you wouldn't have much art to uh, look at or <laughs> or enjoy, you know. I, I agree with you completely. And actually, I mean, I, you know, I'm, uh, I would describe myself as an old-fashioned liberal. Um, I vote Democratic. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I agree with you completely about this. I mean, I, I'm also um, very, I'm Jewish, and I, my Judaism is very, very important to me. Mm-hmm. But I feel a profound connection with a number of writers and composers who were extraordinarily anti-Semitic. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very interested in Ezra Pound's poetry, um, uh, I mean, he was, you know, I mean, he uh, did, you know, broadcaster in World War II, anti- rabidly anti-Semitic broadcaster. Mm. Um, uh, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think one of the things is um, people, you know, people, life is confounding. Life is not simple. And I think the desire to oversimplify life um, can be dangerous. And I think what you're talking about, um, about Alec Baldwin or, or whatever, is is part of that. I mean, I, I think it's possible to, um, uh, to to you know look at a person's political views and look at their their work um, and see that they're uh, they're different aspects. I mean, I in a way I like the complexity of human beings. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and it's not that, you know, look, if you, you like Alec Baldwin, you may hear him do a political ad and, you know, you may be uncomfortable about it. Um, I feel that way about some, you know, things. I mean, uh, I mean, I love this, um, this the opera by Strauss Capriccio. Um, uh, it was premiered in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I've heard people say, well, that is a, for them a problem with the opera. It's an opera that's, that's completely apolitical. Um, uh, now I can understand feeling a discomfort about that, you know, just like I love Henry James's writing. I wish he hadn't been an anti-Semite. Um, but that's also part of the complexity of, of human experience, I think, you know, um, and part of the beauty of art is that I think great artists, um, part of their greatness is that, they may start out with, you know, they have a commission to do this and that, but um, in the process of making, of dealing with this dynamic between the authority of a of a tradition, artistic tradition, and their freedom, they go beyond what was initially supposed to be there. You know, one of the wonderful um, stories and examples of this in in this book is Picasso's Guernica. Mm -hmm. Uh, People don't realize that Picasso's Guernica, which was produced in 1937 for the Spanish Pavilion um, at the Paris uh, World's Fair, um, a lot of Spanish leftists, okay, and this is, of course, in the midst of the Spanish Civil War, a lot of Spanish leftists didn't like Guernica. They felt it was not 
clearly enough a piece of propaganda mm-hmm. supporting uh, the the, uh, uh, the democratic the uh, side um, in in this uh, what was actually they called the Republican side in the Spanish uh, c- civil war. They felt that it was too much kind of Picasso getting into his own personal symbolism. Yeah. Um, it wasn't Guernica was not a picture of the bombing of the town of Guernica that had taken place. It was Picasso imagining violence, war, cruelty in in some very, very free way. Um, and so leftists felt it wasn't they felt it wasn't clear enough. It didn't hammer home its point clearly enough. The irony here is that what more than half a century later, Guernica is recognized as one of the sort of great um, statements about human cruelty. And I think the reason it has the staying power it has is because rather than illustrating a particular political viewpoint, what Picasso did was out of his emotions about Spain and what was happening in Spain, he went into this process of how do I make a mural? How do I make a large painting? What are the traditions of large paintings? And how am I, as a free individual, an artist working freely, how am I going to express myself and my feelings? And what he came out with was this thing that kind of, it pops out of, it transcends the particularity of that moment, of that political moment. And I think when you think about it, that's what a lot of the great art done, even in previous centuries, mm-hmm. um, uh, for, you know, for the church um, or for, uh, you know, uh, this prince or this king. What those great artists did was they kind of, it's not that they're unaware of the political situation, but because they're so immersed in this artistic, imaginative process, they take it somewhere else. Yeah, you mentioned, like you said, the how the Spanish left were a little myth that Guernica wasn't as propagandistic as they would like. Uh, you have this uh, section in the book where you talk about uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, the writer, the uh, uh, severely Catholic uh, writer, uh, go team papist. Um, she, uh, a, a priest of hers who was a friend, uh, sent her a novel that he thought she would enjoy. Uh, because the novel was, uh, you know, sort of severely Catholic. <laughs> and uh, I sent it to her and said, hey, you know, check this out. And she read it and she was basically like, well, this book is is, is shit. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, no matter whether or not the I agree with the, you know, the message that's trying to be promoted, um, it's uh, it's been perverted. You know, she, uh, you have a quote that says, when you use an art form uh, for anything other than art, you pervert it and you, you have to make it art first uh but is that i mean that's not always necessarily true i mean you could think of uh you know maybe say like uh you know something like animal farm or uh you know is a great uh piece of art or some people would say like the grapes of wrath i think that book is is terrible and tedious uh i like steinbeck i just i just really don't like that book or say something like uh, you know Bob Dylan's uh, you know the the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, 
or uh, you know Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, something like that. Those are obviously um, pieces of art that have or um, a uh, political message or uh, or it's sort of message first, right. and they're still um, you know great works of art. So is uh, is but she you know, all is, is Flannery O'Connor altogether right about that? Or I mean, you know, well, I think you know, I, in a way, to I think you answered your own question when you said you gave your objections to the Grapes of Wrath <laughs> um, because you said it's tedious. In other words, it doesn't. I mean, I think what Flannery O'Connor would have sa- said to you about what you just said exactly right. It didn't. It's not that she, she goes on to say. Flannery O'Connor goes on to say a work of art can perhaps have some political or social significance, mm-hmm. but you have to make it a work of art first. Yes. Um, and I think, um, you know, uh, Strange Fruit or um, Animal Farm, uh, uh, first of all, I don't know that that's the greatest of uh, Billy Holiday or the greatest of um, of George Orwell. No, but, but, but I mean, they're... <laughs> the enduring value of those things, I think, has to do with the fact that they bring to what they're doing a larger artistry, okay, which is um, they it, it's it's storytelling, it's the nature of a kind of voice. Um, I mean, the way Billie Holiday sings that song is very strange, really. You know, I mean, it's kind of... Um, uh, it might not be the way you would imagine somebody would most effectively sing it. You know what I mean? It's it's so. I, I could probably say that about any Billie Holiday performance. Right. Though, right. Well, know, yeah. like she brings to what she does her sense of what she, as an artist, what she freely can do within the conventions of of a certain kind of singing. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I mean, obviously um, there are you know, I mean. There are uh, vast differences in what um, uh, in, in how art interacts with the world. I mean, a novel, first, the novel tends to be a form, uh, not just animal form, but I mean, think of Dickens. It mm-hmm. tends to be a form that interacts um, more actively with political and social issues. Okay, but again, what makes Dickens's um, Bleak House um, uh, so powerful is, uh, you know, it's the rhythms of the writing. It's, it's, it's the way that as a prose stylist, Dickens brings the social or political comedy or commentary to life. Mm. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, some friends have said to me about this book, people who are quite enthusiastic about the book have said, well, they think I'm a little bit um, kind of too much downplaying um, the fact that a social or political message can be there in a great work of art. Um, and I think it can be, but the point is, and I think it's a point really, it's a point that's really important to make right now in this time we're living in is that um, art um, uh, th- that art that art has its own role to play in our world. I mean, you know, you, you read now about, I don't know how, how widespread they are, all these controversies about um, books in school libraries um, mm-hmm. and this book and that book. Um, I guess 
what I find myself wondering is, um, are kids um, being taught, um, are they reading good short stories? Are they being taught what a short story is? Are they being taught grammar? Um, you know, let's not worry about exactly who the protagonist is. Let's talk about the structure of a story, the structure of a sentence. Um, I, I recently, with this book, was down in um, Charleston, South Carolina, speaking to a bunch of classes in a, 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 a private school. And uh, one of the things I asked the kids, these are high school kids, was um, uh, how many of you have played instruments? I mean, this is to you know, an affluent community. Mm -hmm. um, and because I wanted to talk about, you know, learning to play music is a wonderful case of authority and freedom. You have to learn the authority of how to play the instrument, um, how to read music. And what, and it's very hard at first, but once you get to a certain point, there's a freedom of expression. The, one of the things that shocked me was how few of these young people had, had played an instrument, the piano or the violin or, you know, the the flute um the friggin so, guitar for great sake you know. right yeah i mean so and i think um you know rather than talking about the political message whether we like it or not of uh, a movie um let's talk about like i say yeah alec Baldwin. i don't agree with it but he's a compelling actor the interesting question it becomes well why what why is he compelling what are the things that make him compelling i think there's not enough focus on on the the fascination of art, you know, um, mm -hmm. and I also get I'll say one more thing about this. I get very frustrated when there's a feeling that well, if you're um, uh, uh, you know black, you should be reading black authors, or mm -hmm. if you're um, uh, you know uh, Asian, you should be interested in Asian culture, and that's and you should be, of course. Mm -hmm. But the but part of the extraordinary thing about art is because it has its own laws and logic, yeah. it does have this ability to cross boundaries. So in 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 Asia, there's this tremendous enthusiasm for European classical music, yeah. You know, yeah. which some people now call white music. You know, why do people in, in Japan love Beethoven and Mozart and Bach? Why is that? That's because those things um, have a life and logic of their own. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of the uh, the virtuoso uh, musicians, uh, the you know, the really uh, are coming from uh, right. from Asia, from China, from Japan, from Korea. Uh, but yeah, but just the idea of this whole cultural appropriation thing just sort of drives me nuts. Uh, I was reminded about this. Um, I was uh, I had. A, interview with uh, Noah Rothman from Commentary oh, okay. um, a couple weeks ago, and uh, he has a new book about, uh, or his uh, uh, thesis that uh, uh, the left are becoming the new, uh, the, the far progressive left are becoming the new Puritans, oh, and uh, one of the examples he talked about was this column that I had forgotten about uh, that came out in the, the Washington Post, what's his name, uh, the, the critic uh, Chris Richards in the Washington post had this, uh, article back in like 2017, 2018, something like that. There was like, he asked is, is cultural appropriation ever okay. And his, he was talking about how he was having a conversation with, uh, a band, uh, you know, uh, an indie rock band, you know, you know, a bunch of white guys. And they were talking about their, 
admiration for uh, you know some unnamed uh, you know black R&B singer and how much they loved his music and how the band had thought about covering you know some of his songs and playing them live but then thought uh, you know what maybe we probably shouldn't do that you know that's uh, culture appropriation and and Richards writes um, you know and the reverence for that music was probably better expressed through conversations like the one we were having that night anyway than their covers would have been and as badly as i wanted to hear their covers they were right i just find that like so um uh i just that that line of thinking i just find that so asinine that if you um you know part of the whole point of like enjoying art is trying to get other people to enjoy the art that you enjoy uh, you know, and so if you really dig something, you know, matter, you know, what color or, or creed or, or sex the person is, you know, I, I, I feel like you should be able to share your enthusiasm for that without, you know, sort of being beaten over the head with how, you know, how dare you do those sorts of things. And, and it's just the idea that, I mean, we, what's the, you know, what's the point well, of being a, uh, in a, in a band <laughs> if you can't cover, you know, R&B songs or soul songs, you know, like what the, what the hell is the point even of doing it? Um, and just, I don't know. It's just, it just drives me, uh, insane. And just to think like, you know, uh, a lot of these, uh, singers are these black artists, um, these black musicians, you know, how far less known would they be by, um, uh, sort of mainstream, you know, white American uh, culture, if if their music wasn't shared first by you know uh, the Rolling Stones or 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 the Beatles or you know or whoever um, or the Talking Heads or you know what I mean, uh, doing an Al Green cover or something like that. Um, so I don't but, know. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, sorry. There's there's a bigger question behind what you're talking about. Really leads to a very a very big question, which is the question of of universal values. Are there, and it's not just in the arts, but you know, the whole question, is freedom a, uh, a sort of universal human um, value? Is, is, are, is beauty, is, and what is beauty, you know, is rhythm, um, uh, shape, form, the forming of things, are these universal uh, desires or urges? And there's, um, there's a real, um, you know, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a serious, there's always been, a, a, I think, a serious political, um, you know, a, a rather philosophical argument about that, um, you know, going in various directions. But I, I think partly what you're talking about is, and uh, you're advocating for, and I agree, is um, the sense of, of, of the universal, that we, we love the particular. We love that certain people are certain ways, they have traditions, they have particular experiences. But um, th that, I mean, I guess I'm profoundly committed to the idea that there are universal qualities and feelings and and uh, and uh, apprehensions, uh, love, uh, you know, a sense of family, community, beauty. Mm -hmm. um, th th those are, um, I think, they are universal. And and you know, some people will say, oh. That's just an enlightenment idea. It goes back to Kant or not before. But I really don't believe that's true. Um, you know, certainly in the visual arts, which is the thing I know the most about, I mean, you go back to, to um, you know, 
ancient times, medieval times, the Renaissance, um, to the extent that artists in Europe could find out about stuff going on in like um, Asia Minor mm -hmm. and Asia, you know, through the Silk Route and stuff like that, they were fascinated by what other people were doing in other places. Sure, yeah. um, and I think that, um, again, we don't, you know, we don't want to all, you know, be bleached out and become the same. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, the sense of looking pat, you know, of that, that you can go beyond past your particularity, yeah. you value your particularity, but always also go past it, um, is I think you know, in all of life, an extraordinary important thing. And I think the arts are a place, um, where, where, where that really, um, happens. Um, and, and it's really possible. Yeah. It's I, mean, just, I, I was just saying, it just seems, I, I don't like the idea of people telling other people or especially uh, creative types or artists that they can't do certain things uh, well, for, you know, these arbitrary reasons of, you know, uh, and especially the, the cultural appropriation. And, you know, is, does that mean someone's going to tell Miles Davis he can't, you know, do someday my prince will come or or, you know, John Coltrane can't cover, you know, my favorite things because it was written by two Jews. You know, uh, and it's just, uh, I, I don't know, it's, um, it just drives me off the wall. I, I just hate that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, Agreed. <laughs> yeah, right. So something I was just thinking of, I'm, I'm going to tease this out. I didn't like actually write this down as a question, but I was just thinking about it when you brought up, uh, you know, you were speaking to that uh, group of affluent uh, kids in South Carolina, high school kids. I was thinking... Uh, do you think this uh, this politicization of the art world? Uh, do you think that's something that's um, become more uh, prevalent? That um, it seems to me, I don't know if it's something you've noticed, or maybe I might be wrong with this, but it seems to me that more and more um, uh, people that are making it. Uh, in any sort of artistic endeavor, music, uh, movies, uh, what have you, seem to be coming from uh, more uh, upper income or like upper middle class families than there ever were, where, um, where the sort of politicization of life might be something more of a, um, a it might be something that's more... Um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Uh, disgust or something. I don't know. It just seems to me that, um, you know, uh, it, more and more art is being made by people from, uh, from that come from families with like two professional parents or, uh, you know, that, ha or that have uh, a parent in the industry that they're in to be with, or like, uh, just say like somebody like Taylor Swift, right. Uh, um, you know, uh, it's very famous that Taylor Swift's parents like upped and moved from Pennsylvania to Nashville to further <laughs> Taylor Swift's music career when she was a kid. And, uh, you know, not very many families um, have the ability to just uh, pick up and move, you know, yeah, almost I halfway across the country to further their, the music career of their ch or the whatever career of their child. And, and and will it be able to do that and not totally 
upend their family life. Um, but it seems like something that uh, the pl art politicization is, you know, something that's might be more of a of a a luxury belief of the upper classes, and and as the upper classes become more dominant in in the arts, that uh, that there's a reason that that's why art has become more politicized. Do you think that has any merit? I don't, I don't I, yeah, I, I I don't know about that. I I don't I um I I I do think you know when you get to the whole question of like. Why um, is there so much focus in the media, the press, on the kind of uh, the, the political or social aspects of works of art? I sometimes feel, um, and it gets to this question of kind of, you know, the broader question of the culture. I sometimes feel that the, the political and social stuff rushes in because um, there's a kind of um, vacuum where there should be a kind of foundation of art. Of, of appreciation of art. And mm -hmm. I think it does go back, I mean, uh, to, frankly, questions of, of education. I mean, I mean that. I mean, I think, you know, again, I don't know. I'm not a sociologist. I, I, I don't know what the figures are. But I have a sense, and partly my story about uh, Charleston relates to that, I have a sense that, like, there are fewer, um, uh, you know, like, uh, orchestras and bands in public elementary schools and junior high schools and high schools than it used to be. Oh, probably, yeah. Uh, my suspicion is that um, kids are less taught, you know, maybe 50 years ago in an elementary school or high school art class, you were actually taught sort of the rudiments of how to draw, if you'll pardon the expression, correctly. Um, grammar is not something I don't think is taught very much anymore. And I think... Um, those again, to me, are those are the building blocks of the arts, um, and I think too often um, kids are told do whatever you want. That's what art is, um, and uh, you know it's just you know, whatever you whatever you feel like. That's what art is, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's very dangerous. Um, I think uh, so. I think sometimes pe we, uh, people, you know, you know, young middle-aged people, you know, grown-ups, frankly, today, they haven't had teachers who said, "This is what a, a a poem is." You know, do people even know what a sonnet is? You know, how many lines a sonnet is? Iambic pentameter, you know, yeah. And I think. You know, when you look back to the history of modernism, a lot of, and even going into the 1950s and 60s, a lot of the art we find most compelling was people who had learned all those rules, if you'll pardon the, the term, and then were fighting them, working through them. And I think there's sort of a vacuum now. People don't understand um, what, the, what the issues are. I mean, one of the things I make points to make at the very beginning of the book is um, – Paintings, we assume a painting is on a rectangle, okay? And that's kind of this basic assumption. A painting doesn't have to be on a rectangle. Right. But, but, I but, you know, if you've had like a good art history course, people talk about that. What do you do on a rectangle? And how does that work? And I think a lot of grown-ups today, frankly, nobody ever talked to them about like what artists, serious artists actually do, what the challenges are. Um, so I think there's kind of a vacuum and then like, well, 
Why does art matter? Oh, it matters because it agrees with my political views or something, you know, or I don't like it because it doesn't agree with my political views. Whereas um, uh, it matters because um, the orchestration is beautiful, you know, um, and it's not like you have to be a, a, a composer to understand that. I mean, uh, you just have to have a trained ear and, you know, having learned to play an instrument a little bit is a help. So I think, I think, you know, one of the things I think is very important is, I mean, I think America has to reaffirm um, education in the arts, in literature, um, as, as a way to, to give people some, you know, a sense of what, what artists really, what serious artists really do. Uh, well said. I agree with you there. Um, getting oh boy, we've already gone four five minutes. Um, so I guess just uh, I'll start wrapping up. Uh, one more question before the end. So you have uh, you write in the book that um, uh, the place of the arts and civilization depends on the engagement of an enormous number of practitioners, not just on the actions of uniquely inspired uh, on the actions of uniquely inspired individuals. Um, but doesn't the, the sensori censoriousness of a, of a hyper-politicized art world make, uh, doesn't that make participation and engagement by everyday people, uh, less likely? Um, you know, wouldn't it make such moments of artistic greatness from, from those uniquely inspired individuals less likely to happen if, um, you know, if painters and musicians and writers and filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera, are if they're constantly sort of looking over their shoulders to see, uh, you know, what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. I, 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 absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll use a word that's unfashionable today, gatekeepers. I mean, I think the gatekeepers, uh, whether the, you know, editors of, of magazines and uh, publishing houses, uh, museum directors and curators, I mean, uh, they're under terrible pressure today, um, and uh, and a lot of them, uh, you know, they, they they're they're caving. Um, uh, it's you know it's become perilous uh, as a curator, you know, in a museum to say we should show this, um, you know, because the, the work of this contemporary artist because um, it's visually compelling. Um, uh, period. Um, mm -hmm. Full stop. I mean, that's become very uh, difficult. And, and look, partly I wrote this little book um, uh, because I know there are a lot of people out there, um, a lot of um, uh, people um, who are troubled by what's happening uh, in in the arts, um, and they feel embarrassed to say um, art has its own laws and logic. They feel embarrassed to say it, and, mm -hmm. and partly I wrote this book to give them something uh, to, to kind of hang on to. I, I what I was really trying to do is say, hey, these are arguments you can make. Like if you're um, you know you're in a meeting at a museum and somebody say, well. I don't know, this is, you know, art by, a, uh, you know, a, a, a white guy or a, 
uh, or a white gal who, and it doesn't really, um, you know, it doesn't engage with any of the big issues of the day. What do you say in response? What is the person who's advocating for it say in response? And in part, this book was um, uh, meant for those people and meant for, for, for concert goers, for museum goers, for readers who, who could feel embarrassed um, that, you know, they, they went to, you know, I, my wife and I just recently, uh, we took our, one of our granddaughters to see uh, American Ballet Theater, Romeo and Juliet and uh, Swan Lake, um, you know, which for her, you know, for a 10 year old, they were just, it was incredibly exciting. Mm -hmm. But I, I think there are people who may feel embarrassed. Um, what's the message, you know? So I wrote this book in a way for people like that to say, well, this is why that stuff matters. This is why Tchaikovsky matters. And can this ballerina be convincing as, as you know, Odette and Odile? And, um, and can this young man, this 23-year-old dancer, Ron Bell, um, be convincing as a prince who's in love with a swan? I mean, uh, you know, why does that matter? I was trying to explain that in this book. Okay, great. Um, well... Last question, and uh, something I normally ask everybody that comes on. You might have just answered it with your last answer, but I'll uh, I'll, I'll ask it uh, just in case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, what's the what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? I think I I, I want people to feel that art has its own life um, that, that that artists what artists do is they go deep into these this process that we call it a creative process but it has to do with knowing the traditions of novel writing or painting or dancing and then out of all that finding their own freedom their own thing of saying and I want people to feel that that whole process is so important in our world um, but important for its own mysterious reasons. Um, and it doesn't have to fit into a political or social agenda. That art is there in the middle of our lives. It should be there in the middle of our lives, but doing its own mysterious thing. Um, I, I want people to feel that it can do that, that there isn't a, a, a conclusion necessarily you can draw. But that's part of the beauty of art. Uh, that it doesn't have those cut and dry answers. All right. Great. Well, um, before we go, is there uh, anything else uh, you want to plug? Anything else going on? Any appearances or social media or anything like that you want to uh, get out, get the word out there for? Just get the word. I'd love to have some people bought the book. <laughs> All right. Great. And uh, yeah, that book again is Authority and Freedom. Uh, defense of the arts and um uh, highly recommended book out there uh for everybody um uh, i was nodding in agreement pretty much through the the entire thing but uh uh i've been um you know a fan of yours for uh quite a while now um you know uh, uh just to read you back in the old uh, uh marty perrette's days at the the, the good old days of the new republic new republic and uh so uh, between I've, I've learned a lot uh uh you know sort of um sort of a autodidact when it comes to uh, uh especially sort of high art um which you know uh so 
learned a lot from you and uh, from others. Uh, you know, Terry Teachout, another one of those guys uh, who I uh, actually tend to think about. Uh, seems, seems like every day I think about Terry Teachout uh, for some reason. But anyway, uh, yeah. So I've been a big fan of yours, and I uh, just wanted to uh, thank you for. Um, uh, thank you for enlightening me uh, to a world of uh, wonderful art. And uh, so I just want to tell you how much I uh, appreciate your work and uh, how much I appreciate the book and uh, how much I appreciate uh, you coming on coming on the podcast to uh, discuss it with me. Thank you, Tim. This right. has been fun. And I'll just say, I think we're all autodidacts in one way or another. We're kind of all learning as we go. Yeah, that, I guess that's probably true. Probably true. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and again, if you like this podcast, please uh, make sure you leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can uh, reach out to me at uh, tbensonandheartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we also have our Twitter account for the uh, podcast, uh, our, our Twitter, the Twitter handle, which I always forget what is it uh oh yeah at ill books at i l l books so feel free to uh you know check us out there for you know if you have any questions or or uh, comments or what have you uh feel free to go you know send us a dm or give us a follow or you know all that sort of stuff so check us out there and uh yeah that's pretty much it so uh thanks for listening everybody we'll see you next time take care love you mom love you robbie bye bye Getting the spirit in the dark. I'm getting the spirit in the dark. Keep on moving.